focus point being mainly just people who believe in the power of the media. The community came together and supported each other. Welcome to Brainwaves, a podcast about big ideas produced at the University of Colorado Boulder. I'm Lisa Marshall. We started this podcast in February, and since then, you all have tuned in from all over the U.S. and the globe, from New Zealand to England. We've explored everything from the possibility of anti-aging pills to inherent racism and artificial intelligence to the health benefits of getting dirty. We're now taking a break for a few months to enjoy the holidays and get busy on new episodes for 2020. We plan to be back early next year, but before we go, we compiled a few of our favorite interviews from 2019, perspectives that remain keenly relevant today. We'll start with a conversation with Liz Skews about the state of news and our trust in it. Skews is a former political reporter who covered Al Gore on the campaign trail. She's also an author and associate professor of journalism and media studies at CU Boulder. So I understand you traveled with Al Gore on the campaign trail in 2000. You spent some time with John Kerry, Mitt Romney, and Hillary Clinton in the past election cycles. How has political campaign coverage changed in the last few years? How has it changed since 2016 even? And what are some of the new challenges that reporters are facing? And then, you know, to kind of wrap that all up, what does that mean for the rest of us, the voters out there? So campaign coverage has changed significantly in the sense that it's gotten more contentious. Uh, what you didn't mention was I traveled with Sarah Palin's campaign in 2008. Um, for about a week. And I noticed in that campaign cycle that there was more intentional pointing out at the media and kind of blaming the media, if you will, for bad coverage, the liberal media, the lamestream media, she used to call it. And I think that gave voice to some of what Donald Trump did in the 2016 election cycle and what has continued. And so even just recently this week, the White House just shutting down a lot of the hard passes that some reporters had to cover the White House means that there is more of a, might be strong language, but kind of a war on the press, if you will. And I think that's affecting the ability of reporters to cover the campaign in a way that is seen as neutral. Now, they do a lot of neutral coverage, and they're really trying to do the best job they can. But when journalists keep bumping up against problems, restrictions, things that impede their ability to do their job, it means that the public doesn't get the information that they need in order to make informed decisions, which is really at the heart of all of this. Do you see on the campaign trail a liberal bias from these reporters? It depends on how you define liberal. If you define liberal as left of center politically, then I would say no. If you think of liberal as being people who believe in the power of the media to be part of a solution, an agent of change where there are problems, then yes. That's what draws people to journalism is the goal to, to tell stories that motivate people to solve the country's problems. With the advent of social media, the role of traditional media, newspapers, TV, radio is shifting. How do you see that playing into this new election cycle in 2020? Social media is a beast. It really is. Because anybody can do it. Traditional journalists use social media, but so do people from all walks of life. And social media exists for those purposes so that anybody can say anything. It's a free speech right. But when anybody can say anything, it all looks the same. 
And so for people who used to get their cues about quality of information by saying, well, this is in my newspaper, this is on my broadcast station, this is my news radio, on social media, it all looks the same. And it gets harder to discern what is real from what's not, what is fact from what's opinion. There's data that shows that people have a harder and harder time distinguishing fact from opinion. A study conducted last January 2018 said that only 33% of Americans felt with any degree of confidence that they could tell the difference between fact and opinion in their news. That's a problem. So if it all looks the same, then we treat it the same. And because we can't tell the difference between fact and opinion, we discount it all which means we don't know what to trust. And that kind of leads me to my next question. There's been a lot of talk about fake news since 2016. A lot of reports detailing concentrated disinformation efforts spread via social media, including coming from uh, you know, the United States Senate Intelligence Committee, just detailing these, these very concentrated efforts of Russian troll farms and things like that. Is the idea of fake news new even. I understand we've kind of seen this before. And then what do you do about that going into 2020? Well, we have seen it before. So you can go back to the Muskie campaign, right, where the what the Nixon campaign was in uh, 72 and the whole Canuck letter thing. And that was fake news, right? The committee to reelect was the one who created the Dirty Tricks team created this fake letter. But Social media puts it all on steroids, if you will. I mean, things move so quickly. Misinformation spreads as fast as accurate information. I think where that leaves us going into 2020 is really that we've got to be a whole lot smarter. Voters, individuals have to take it upon themselves to read broadly, because if we only stay in our own comfort zone, our own channel, the place where we are most comfortable, then we don't get exposed to the breadth of ideas. We can't make good decisions if we're not being exposed to the full range of ideas. That's what our open marketplace of ideas requires of us. So we need to be smarter about that. We need to be smarter about saying, what news can we really trust and what news can't we trust? Because some stuff is crap. Do you have uh, maybe a couple of tips for people listening at home on how they can kind of protect themselves against fake news when you're right, it is hard to differentiate between real news and something that some kid out in Siberia came up with. So one of the easiest things to do is look at some of the web browser extensions that you can install. So there's things like Trusted News or NewsGuard. You can install them right on your computer and they color code your news. There's a green check mark if it's from a reliable source. There's a, an icon with a bunch of little people if it's crowdsource news. There's a red X if it's, you can read this if you want to, but don't trust it. So there are things that you can do that are just easy to kind of say, how much faith should I put in this? Vanessa Otero, I believe her name is, does a media bias chart. Now, she's done a pretty good job with it. You can take, you can quibble with some of her judgments about where things go, but her media bias chart looks at news both from where it falls on the political spectrum, but she's got another layer of grid which looks at how high quality is it. So it might be slightly left or slightly right of center, but if it's high quality, great. But if it's not, if it's down at the bottom, leave it alone. Or read it just for entertainment. You know, read it for entertainment like eat a, eat a Twinkie because it tastes good, but not because you expect anything valuable out of it. And then kind of final question, do you think we're actually going to see this kind of fake news coming into 2020? Or are we 
taking the advice of experts like yourselves, are we doing a better job or is it just going to be kind of 2016 part due? I think there is going to be as much attempt as ever to push fake news. And the question is going to be how smart are we about resisting it? But it was successful in 2016. So the people who did that in 2016, sure, they're going to try it again. And they're probably going to be a little bit smarter about doing it. Okay. Excuse. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Up next, we have Brian Henry, a team member of the Bureau of Land Management who helps predict what wildfire season is going to be like. We talked to him back in May, but given the current situation in Los Angeles, his insights seem all the more important. So, Brian Henry, what does the forecast look like for the western United States, basically wildfire central for the United States, going into the summer of 2019? Interestingly, this year, it seems like if you as you take the West as a whole, it's going to be pretty much a, an average out to be a very average year, which has actually become the exception because most years have been much more active than what we have seen in the past. Now, that being said, there are some uh, focus points that we have been keying in on that raise concerns for us, uh, one being the Pacific Northwest, mainly from the Cascades West for a change to the coast, and then also across parts of California in those middle and lower elevations where they have a lot of grass growing there. And um, they've gotten a lot of rain in in California, so they're growing a lot of um, thick uh, grasses and dense grass crops and, and so on and so forth. So when that stuff dries out and cures by mid to late summer, there could be some problems there. But there are some areas, some areas that uh, we feel a whole lot better about this year than previous years, one being the higher terrain in general. Uh, from Colorado all the way uh, through the Great Basin and even into the uh, Sierra in California. Snowpack over the winter was well above average, and uh, the snowpack is coming off at a slower-than-average rate, which is a, a good sign. So those are some of the, the brighter spots. Um, other things that we're, we're looking at are we're trying to evaluate what's going on with drought across the West. And if we were to look at the drought monitor that's issued weekly, you'll see a map that is about as free of drought across the United States as you'll ever see, with um, focus points being mainly just across a small section of the Pacific Northwest and some residual stuff down there in the four corners from uh, the previous year's drought. So, yeah, very wet winter. Uh, Sounds like not just in the Rockies there, which have had pretty much record snowfall, but also on the West Coast there. What's different between the Rockies and the West Coast, uh, particularly that Pacific Northwest and kind of the California area where that California area is a concern, whereas the Rocky Mountains, not so much? It's been all about the weather patterns from the late winter through present. Along the Canadian border, say from Glacier National Park in Montana west through uh, Puget Sound, their snowpack was actually below average this winter and into the early spring. And they've also had some uh, some very warm high-pressure ridge events, which have helped melt off that snowpack very quickly. But it's a, very much an anomaly when you look at the other areas as a whole. And something that's been very interesting about the west, especially as of late, We've had a lot more of these wet, low-pressure systems moving across that are also very cool. And we're in the midst of having a pretty big pattern change currently that's going to be really last for about the next week and a half, possibly two weeks, to where you have these successive wet and cool systems moving in from the Pacific 
bringing some rain and even some mountain snow. With that wet spring, it's the Pacific Northwest going to you know bail themselves out of more wildfire risk, or are they still kind of looking uh, down the pike of a potentially rough season there? It's going to linger a little bit. What's, what's going to happen with this weather pattern that's coming in? They were heading towards a very early start to their fire season. They usually don't start seeing significant activity till late June at the earliest, but they're already we're starting to have some fires west of the Cascades already. So with this pattern that's changing, that's coming in, bringing all this moisture, this is going to kind of give them like a temporary reset that will allow for them to have a uh, more of a normal entry into their season. But the effects of that drought up in that area and the dry soil moistures and the dry fall that they had last year and the below average snowpack, that will still be felt, but it'll probably more so as you get towards like the 1st of July and getting to August, which is traditionally when they have their core fire season. So when it does get ready to burn up there for the fire season, it'll burn very actively and we are expecting an above average fire season up there. With the massive fires we saw in, you know, I'm thinking about the campfire out there in California and a few others. Are we at risk of seeing that same kind of thing this year and why or why not? Uh, that's always a concern that's in the back of my mind, especially in lieu of watching that fire from my office here in Boise, Idaho. I was looking on the weather satellites. You could see the fire spreading very rapidly. Uh, I am concerned about that because we do have such a good, heavy, uh, thick grass crop that's growing this year across uh, California. And as people continue to build into the wildland urban interface, basically on the edge of the towns up into like foothills and things like that in the canyons, um, they, they tend to build into areas that may be more susceptible to to uh, fires of, of those kinds. So when it does warm up and dry out, and it will happen at some point in the summer, it's just it's going to be a little bit later than it usually does, um, those fires could become, I mean, those grasses could become quite problematic for us. Anything else that you want to add that people need to be paying attention to kind of as we enter fire season? Uh, just to be, uh, I'd urge people to be uh, cautious once we, you see those those grasses turn brown and cure out and dry, especially during those really hot, dry days. And if there's any wind present, please don't even think about lighting any uh, campfires or anything like that, because <laughs> it could go very badly. <laughs> Sounds good. Thank you so much. All right. Appreciate it. Thank you. Next up, Brainwaves Cole Hemstreet brings us a candid chat with Mel Tucker, head coach of the University of Colorado Boulder football team, about what's being done to make the sport safer. Mel Tucker has lived a football life. Before becoming the head coach for CU Boulder this offseason, he played football for the University of Wisconsin in the early 1990s, was defensive coordinator for the Chicago Bears as well as the University of Georgia last season, he was even head coach of the Jacksonville Jaguars for part of the 2011 season. Now, standing on the sideline of CU's practice field, he sees some changes from when he started more than 20 years ago. Well, the players are bigger and faster and stronger, but in terms of the way we teach football and the techniques that we use for blow delivery and tackling, I think the game is safer than it's ever been, just in terms of teaching the players to keep their head out of the game. You know, that's, a, that's been a big point of emphasis now for quite some time. You know, really um, a lot of the rule changes that we've had, you know, starting in the NFL, 
years ago. I mean, I'm thinking, you know, 2005, six, seven, when I was in the NFL, there was a real strong push to uh, eliminate, you know, a lot of concussions. Concussions aren't just a problem for the NFL. It's the same thing for us. You know, we uh, talk to our players about taking the head out of the game, you know, and tackling, always having your eyes up, see what you hit, you know, hitting, delivering a blow with a shoulder and a forearm and not leading with the head. And that's somewhat different than what we've heard growing up, you know, as kids pl playing the game. And so a lot of those, those hits, you know, back in years ago, they were a highlight type of hits. Those hits now will, uh, will, be, will, will result in a penalty and an ejection. Tucker says as the game changes, so does the way he coaches. I always make sure that our coaches are saying the same thing that I'm saying. And uh, so we never tell a player to stick his face in there or put your face in the fan or, or knock, knock his head off. or Anything that has to do with the head, we don't, we don't reference that. So it starts with me. I watch every single drill that we do every single day because my number one job is to make sure that our players are safe. And that responsibility is on everyone else's shoulders too. If a coach sees a player, if a teammate sees a player that he thinks may be a little banged up, one of our doctors, our trainers, and we also have spotters in the booth, immediately go and see the doctor and, and get analyzed and, and evaluated. And there's protocol for that. And that player will not return to the game unless he's cleared to go. For Brainwaves, I'm Cole Hemstreet. Finally, we have an encore interview with Ken Bickers, a political scientist at CU Boulder. He talks us through what happened during Richard Nixon's impeachment and discusses today's prevailing distrust in government. Given the events in D.C. this week, this one is as relevant as ever. The resignation of Richard Nixon and the scandal that led up to it. Roughly two years that the country saw an underbelly of the White House, the executive branch, that really was disturbing. It had lasting impacts. A loss in public trust in government is what CU Boulder political science professor Ken Bicker says is one of the lasting legacies from the Watergate scandal. One of the, the numbers that political scientists and others track is trust in government. That number dropped precipitously as that scandal deepened and with the resignation of Nixon. According to the Pew Research Center, before Watergate and Richard M. Nixon resigning as president of the United States, America's trust in government was above 60 percent. But after Watergate, it dropped a lot to 36 percent. And it stayed low for well over a decade, ticked up a little bit, uh, and then it never recovered, never, ever to the heights that it was pre-Nixon. People don't think about government today in a way that people thought about government in the 50s and 60s. Young folks don't assume that government will always do the right thing. Bicker says that while Nixon was not impeached, the specter of being forced from office prompted him to resign. Historically, two presidents have been impeached, Andrew Johnson following the Civil War and Bill Clinton in the 90s. But Bicker says there's a difference between the effort to remove Nixon and what happened to Johnson and Clinton. He says in both of those cases, Congress used impeachment as a political tool. Historically, impeachment was not viewed as a normal political tool. It was used to try to drive Andrew Johnson from the presidency. That was the only time in a very long history of the country until we got to the Clinton period where impeachment was used 
in that way. Bicker says using impeachment as a political tool is not what the founding fathers had in mind. Well, I think we have to have some sort of a relief valve. I think there has to be some mechanism so that a president can be removed. I think without that, we'd have an even more imperial presidency than we have now. The threat of impeachment hanging over every president creates a, a certain uh, worry that they need to make sure that what they're doing would pass the test of appropriateness, probity, those kinds of things. So I think the very fact that it exists is good for the republic. I think what's not good is treating it as just an extension of the last election, where you didn't like the outcome, and now you think you've got enough blood in the water that maybe you can impeach and maybe pull the other side over. I think that's what happened with the Clinton impeachment. I think with Nixon, there was a, a, a sense that, that crimes had been committed and that the president had tried to cover up those crimes and had tried to cover them up, obstruct justice in a willful way. That's it for this season of Brainwaves. If you haven't checked out our other episodes, take this time to go back and listen to a few. Also, please like and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you can catch up with us in the new year. From all of our team, thanks so much for listening. I'm Lisa Marshall. Cole Hemstreet, Dirk Martin, and Paul Bake produced this episode. Andrew Sorensen is our executive producer. See you next year on Brainwaves.